Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Global Shuffle Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Volabert, and I was pleased to interview Tracy Elop, CEO of Corizon, last week. I currently serve on the board of Corizon. It's a phenomenal organization that does great work in mental health and children's services here in the Kitchener-Waterloo community. And I've gotten to know Tracy a bit uh, during my time on the board, and I think she's an incredibly dynamic individual, and I wanted to take the time to interview her and and to learn more about her story. So a few things that we touch on is her journey from her corporate career at Deloitte into the nonprofit sector, Uh, a decision I really admire and, and look up to in that she took a year off with her family and traveled entirely around the world to each continent. And, and we talk a lot about the decision-making around that, the memories, the experiences, uh, her tips for if, if you were to try something like that, uh, what brought her to join Carize and what excites her about the organization and the impact that it looks to make, and also some thoughts on the unique role that nonprofit CEOs play today in 2017. So for anyone that's interested in the nonprofit sector, uh, taking a year off traveling around the world, and just hearing from a very accomplished and passionate individual, I hope you enjoy my interview with Tracy today. Let's go. So Tracy, welcome to the Global Shuffle podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time. For anyone that's listening, this is 4 p.m. on a Friday, so I've taken the eluded spot during the week, so we'll try to make this as focused as possible. But uh, I think there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about today. I serve on the board of Corizon, which is a great organization. Tracy is the CEO there, uh, but she has a unique path that she took to get there, and she's had some interesting experiences on the way. And because of the place she sits in as a nonprofit CEO, there's lots I want to ask her about that. So we'll try to go through some of those, but I guess as a starting point, who are you, Tracy? How would you describe yourself? Well, um, I am a chartered professional accountant by uh, by training, and uh, some people say while I'm a chartered professional accountant by training, I'm a social worker in my heart, and uh, I spent the better part of my career um, up until my transition to, into the not-for-profit world. I spent the better part of my career working at Deloitte and Touche as a, as an accountant. So, like in that, like what led you initially to accounting? Like, was there like did you always like kind of grow up on that path or? Actually, I didn't. Uh, in fact, I hadn't taken any accounting or business courses until I got into university. I started in university in uh, the math program at the University of Waterloo, and realized that I couldn't see a future in doing math. It didn't seem to connect well with who I was and uh, took some business courses and some accounting courses, was really interested in the Masters of Accounting program at Waterloo and uh, liked what I did there. And so I ended up pursuing that for the next few years. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested like in that whole journey, because again, you spent a number of years in that field and then switched more to the nonprofit side. So what led to, the, to that switch? And I know some of these answers, but I'm more curious for, for this purpose. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you work at an organization like Deloitte, as I did, uh, one of the things that they encourage you to do is to get involved in community. And so when I was living in Toronto, I spent some time at uh, Peel Memorial Hospital on the board there. Uh, I spent about three years there, and I really enjoyed what I did there. Um, my husband and I then left uh, Toronto and moved to Atlanta for a few years and I took a bunch of time and stayed home with my kids and uh, worked on the side. And one of the things that happened, we, we came back in 2001 and ended up relocating to Waterloo. And um, while I was staying home with my kids, I saw an ad in the newspaper for uh, Grand River Hospital Board of Directors position. 
and because I'd already been on the board uh, of a hospital, I applied and spent the next, uh, I think I started on the board in 2003 and I just left the Grand River Hospital board in 2016. Uh, so I spent, you know, 12 years on the board there doing work and I loved the work that I did at Grand River Hospital. It's a phenomenal organization and uh, the opportunity came. We had a, a personal experience where my husband and I both quit our jobs for a year and when we came back we had to find different jobs and uh, as it turned out I found my way um, into the not-for-profit world at that point and realized uh, within probably a week of arriving, I worked at KidsAbility as the Chief Financial Officer. Uh, within about a week of arriving there, it just seemed like this was the right fit for me. It, it combined the passion that I had for, um, for community, uh, for doing good, uh, for having a, a mission that I felt so strongly about and working on that mission every single day to make lives better. Um, it combined all of that passion that I had with the skill set that I had developed uh, in university and also the skill set that I had developed through my time at Grand River Hospital. That's awesome. And if, if you think about, like, if you had just gone straight into that field versus spending time in Deloitte, like, was there different skill sets you could bring because of the time in Deloitte? I'm sure there is, but I'm curious, like, you know, I find myself now working in the corporate sector and working with nonprofits on the side, like I think about things differently than when I was in the nonprofit sector before. So I'm curious what your take is on that. Like, like do you think back to some of those times when you're making certain decisions or? Yeah, I'm a bit of an anomaly when it comes to leaders of not-for-profit organizations. And, uh, you know, and I think initially people don't necessarily know how to take that. There's not there aren't too many chartered accountants that are running not-for-profit agencies. And uh, I think what I hope I have shown people is that it's helpful to have that, that difference in perspective. I come at things very differently. And uh, while uh, individuals who have had a, tr a more traditional path can think in, a diff in that way, having somebody else at the table, particularly in a time frame now where it's not okay just to have individual agencies working in silos. More and more we need to get together and plan together. So having different perspectives that sit around the table that are working together to achieve common good, that's always a good thing and you always get to a better place with that. Mm -hmm. So you spoke earlier about like that you and your husband took a year off and obviously I want to get into that a little bit because um, it was a bit of an inflection point in the way in your journey into this nonprofit sector. But in fact, you traveled the whole world with your family for a year. So, I mean, there's you've done interviews on that in the past. I've read some of them online. But, you know, looking at hindsight, what what led to that decision at the time? Well, it's funny because um, I had said that I stayed home a lot with our kids and um, my husband was the CFO at Christie Digital before we left and uh, the, the, the impetus for us taking a trip came because uh, I, we got a, a letter from a friend of ours in the mail and in this letter she, she was living in the UK at the time with her husband there and she talked about how her husband had been doing so well in his job and I remember I got to the end of the first page of this letters and she said, you know, we, 
my husband just got this great big promotion and we celebrated by and then i turned the page and she said by having him quit and then she went on to talk about how they had two young kids they really needed to take some time and enjoy their kids they had the ability to do so and they were they were sailing on a boat for a year and i think their kids at the time were two and four they were very young and so i'm reading this letter and and kevin my husband sometimes laughs about how he should have just ripped that letter up because i read it and said to him you know why can't we do something like this what's stopping us you know look at this and uh and so then we we went on a real process of saying what is stopping us uh and what what would that achieve for our family and how how would we make that work and so probably for the next uh two or three months the two of us just sort of talked about it and said you know can we do it and we decided that we could uh, so we carefully, quietly planned for about six months and didn't tell anyone. And then about two months before we left, we let people know that we were leaving. And um, so it was great. So how do you plan for that, though? You marry somebody who is really, really organized. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh many times about the fact that I have many great ideas and he has the, Kevin has the tremendous skill set of organization and planning and taking whatever crazy idea I have and making it true and that was absolutely what happened in this case I mean he we planned out uh, overall which countries we wanted to go to and how much time we wanted to spend and uh, then he coordinated kind of flights and and basic things but to a great degree when you go away for a year you don't actually plan every single day so we laugh about uh, arriving in Australia and we knew that we were going to stay in Australia for two months and we flew into Brisbane and we we had found he had found a really inexpensive rental car um, so we hopped in the car and we're driving away from the airport and we looked at each other and said are we driving north or are we driving south and that's the kind of um, freedom you have when yeah. you're away for such a long time. Yeah, well, I, I, but I think now, like a lot of travel I do, yeah, you you generally know every day kind of what you're going to do. You know, if you're going for a week or two weeks, and but that type, you know, if you have two months, that you're not going to have every day planned. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, so what were all the countries you hit again? I think you told some of them to me. There's Australia. Yeah. Um, it's always easier if I go in order. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, we actually did Canada from coast to coast. So we rented an RV and went west up into um, the Yukon and Alaska. We did that, the first piece. Uh, and then at the very end of our trip, we actually drove the same RV east and went all the way to Newfoundland. So uh, it was important for us to um, show our kids um, how beautiful Canada is and how fortunate we are to live in this country. And we wanted to make sure that we did that as part of our trip. Mm. So that was probably three months of it. And then we spent uh, time in Peru. We spent time in um, Europe, but only to the extent of a little bit of time in England and, Par and mm. uh, France. We did the Middle East countries that you're not able to go to easily. We spent a lot of time in Turkey, Syria, Jordan, a little bit in Israel, Egypt. 
so it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to see some of the strife and what's happening in those countries and um, you know seeing places that we had gone almost 10 years ago that were uh, thriving and and now to see what has happened in those countries is is a bit heartbreaking. What was your impression of Syria at the time? Because I hear it was such a vibrant culture and society by all accounts at that point. It was and you know I have this um, I have one experience actually that stands out in my mind where we stayed we stayed in hostels Mm -hmm. and I I remember talking to a hostel owner and it was right at the time that Barack Obama had been elected and there was such hope that he expressed about having President Obama and what that would mean to Syria and the, and the country and how that would put the world into a better direction and I think about him periodically and how different his life must be and whether even he survived and so it's those types of connections that make a difference and mm-hmm. I you know I just hope that he and his family are okay but knowing that I'll never really know the answer to that mm-hmm. okay so you were in the Middle East oh, and now then... the Middle East sorry and I interrupted then, and then uh, we spent some time we went to Australia New Zealand and then we went to Southeast Asia Cambodia and Vietnam um, Hong Kong and Thailand and then we also um, went to Southern Africa so mm-hmm. South Africa and Namibia and then we came home wow so like I said I have a bunch of questions about this because that potentially someone might want to do this one day yes. but I'm sure lots of people as well like think about it and try to understand what would it take to do something like that so first is you mentioned the story about Syria like now it's been about 10 years since that you did that trip like what are the other stories that really stand out or moments that you know stand out as memories to this date. Uh, you know, I I will always remember um, being in Australia and snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef with our kids. Like we um, we took a a boat trip and we took each one in turn mm-hmm. um, and you know held their hands and swam and saw these beautiful fish. Um, so that's that's really special. Um, in Canada, one of the things that we did uh, early on when we were going up to the Yukon, uh, we homeschooled the kids for the year, and um, the first uh, the first social studies uh, unit that we did was on the gold rush, and so we did this whole study all the way from uh, Kitchener-Waterloo all the way up to um, Whitehorse and Dawson City, and uh, we got to a place where we finished that unit and we were at Bonanza Creek where the gold rush started and we got uh, these little tin plates and Bonanza Creek there's nothing there anymore uh, but you can still go there and so I have this vision of us all standing in the river <laughs> panning for gold <laughs> knowing that there's absolutely no way that we were that any of us were gonna find any gold but the excitement of the kids and even my husband I have to say (laughs) of saying well what if we did Uh, so you know most of the tourists don't go to the original creek anymore they go elsewhere Um, but we chose and they put little gold pieces in Mm -hmm. the place that the tourists are supposed to go 
but we actually went and did it in the original river and I have a jar of stuff that we found none of which was gold yeah. <laughs> um, but it's those kinds of small memories and you know our kids were pretty young when we went uh, they were six eight and ten when we left and we wondered whether that was the right time to take our kids away whether they would remember enough whether they would get uh, enough out of it but ultimately what we decided is that even if they didn't remember uh, specific details of where we went it was a blessing to be able to spend 24 hours a day seven days a week for a year with your children mm -hmm. uh, parenting in a way that was not as busy as life is now and there was real value we both felt that there was real value to that and it did allow us we we took our kids to some um, controversial places so we took them to the killing fields in Cambodia we took them to the Vietnam War, War Museum we actually didn't sugarcoat it even though they were so young our six-year-old will probably not remember any of that but I think overall they they recognized the importance that history plays and hopefully it positions them as they get older to ask questions to have that thirst for knowledge and to and to travel a little bit more. Um, one of the other things that I want to mention is, um, I said our youngest was six at the time, so when we got back she was seven, and uh, we had gone up north when we first got home, and we were, we were driving to a store, and I have this memory that Sarah looked at me and said, Canada is a really beautiful place. Mm. And the fact that my seven-year-old recognized that and could see the beauty in our country, I think, is a, is a direct result of having seen so many different places. And so I think that's good. They, they have a sense of being Canadian mm -hmm. and what that means and how fortunate we are that they, they may not have had otherwise. Well, something I take for granted sometimes. I had the opportunity to travel in university for different conferences across the country. And... And prior to that, I had never really been outside of Ontario, and it's easy, it's easy for me to forget that nowadays. I think most Canadians well, haven't had that experience of seeing, you know, major parts of the country and not experiencing it. So that's cool what your daughter said in that respect, just about it. And I'm curious, like, when you guys finally came back to Canada after the whole experience, like, they always talk about reverse culture shock in a way. Like, I'm sure coming back just to the normal day-to-day, -day, like, I'm curious how you and your husband dealt with that, but also with your kids, just what was their adjusted back because they're suddenly going to school with kids that have had, not had similar experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you one of the, there was some culture shock and, and the, the nice, one of the nice things about coming home was, uh, you know, it's familiar, it's routine, but there was a, a calmness to life that we had taken from when we were away that I wish I could say still existed now, <laughs> but it doesn't because you get busy. And so I think that that real sense of leisure is very important. I wish more people could experience that. Um, but when it comes to how the kids reacted and kind of getting back into it, they were actually all very excited to go back to school. I, I tell them that I have to still be their favorite teacher regardless of how many teachers they have. <laughs> but when Laura, who is our middle um, child, when she went back, she went back into grade five. And 
one of the first units they did in the fall was a unit on Egypt. And so she was able to bring in some of the, the, the things that she had collected from Egypt and she presented to the class on the experience that she had there. One of the, the most fun things is that one of her classmates then was doing something and had to uh, do a little bit of research on King Tut's tomb. And so he Googled images of King Tut's tomb and one of the first pictures that came up was a picture of our kids in front of King Tut's tomb. What? And, and it was because we published a blog when we uh, were away, and so it had gotten so many hits that it became one of the, the, the images that was most widely seen. So he did this, and up popped a picture of Laura, and so she thought that was pretty great. That's incredible. It is. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, as you know, I'm recently married, don't have any kids yet, but let's say five, ten years, we want to do something like this. What recommendations would you have if someone wanted to do this today? obviously there's new technology, but also with the experience you had, I'm sure maybe there's some things you would do similarly or also differently now. Um, well, I think it always helps to talk to somebody who's done it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the reasons my husband and I felt that we could do this is that we had done it before. Uh, when we got married, we backpacked for six months. And so we did that on a far... Uh, lower budget yeah. with just two of us than five but but it made us realize I think in when we got married in 1994 uh, we had a budget of $30 per day for everything for both of us so hotel or hostel meals transportation you name it it had to be included in that $30 and so in in doing that kind of a trip we recognized that you know you don't have to have a lot of, you don't have to spend $200 a day to do this. You can do it on a shoestring when you stay in hostels and you backpacked and you don't need to have a lot of luxuries. And I have pictures of some of the places that we stayed in in our honeymoon that, um, you know, I shudder to think of, about them now. But, but the same thing is true, I think, with our family. The idea being you need to understand what, what you're willing to give up and there's a great simplicity that comes from carrying on your back everything you need for your family. And when we went, we had two backpacks, um, two large backpacks, two small suitcases, and one of those suitcases um, had all of our homeschooling materials in. So we really had not very much. Uh, it lends, lends you to leading a very simple life. Uh, and so I think if you haven't ever backpacked, you haven't done this before, it's helpful to connect with somebody who has. And from a technology point of view, you're so fortunate because it's easy to connect with those people. I think it would take no time at all to, to put something out on the internet saying, hey, we're a family of five and this is what we're doing. People who have done this love to talk about it. <laughs> and so there's all kinds of people, there's tips. Uh, it's a fairly easy thing to do if you have the desire to do it. That's awesome. So I guess closing that loop, like again, I think when we, you and I spoke before, when you came back, suddenly a lot had changed and then that kind of led to your um, shift into the nonprofit sector, right? And so eventually, you know, you're a kid's, a kid's ability and then cries and comes calling. So. What got you excited about Horizon? Oh, Horizon is a phenomenal organization. We do so many things. 
and uh, I think the the piece that that makes me excited about Horizon is the breadth of our services and the uh, the impact and the reach that we have. So at Kids Ability, Kids Ability is a great organization that helps kids with special needs, uh, a really important population that needs services. Um, part of what I like about Horizon is it's everyday people living everyday lives. Um, people who come to Horizon could be your neighbors with some mental health challenges that you don't know about. They could be um, kids who are living in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods who need help graduating and we help them. Uh, so the, the great breadth, so at the, at the one end uh, of kind of universal population-based help it's uh, going in and doing community development work, so helping neighborhoods thrive, helping people see the strengths that they have, and and helping them become all that they can be. And we do that in neighborhoods, and we do it through our Pathways to Education program, where we help these high school kids graduate. And then we have a whole bunch of services that are mental health related, um, more specifically. So we help uh, newcomers who are new to our region. We help them deal with their mental health challenges. We have counseling services. And so when you think about the state of mental health, um, just overall in our country, in our province, in our region, mental health is being something that's that's being talked about more and more. And, and we recognize that all of us have mental health challenges. And where at one point in our history, it was difficult to admit that you needed a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful that it's getting easier. There's not as much stigma and hopefully soon there will be no stigma. Mm -hmm. And it's about saying, I'm having a hard time today and I know that somebody can help me work through that. So at Horizon, we just recently opened a walk-in counseling where anybody can come and get some help with a small problem if you're having difficulties dealing with stress if you have anxiety if you're feeling depressed there's somebody here on Tuesdays where you can just walk in and get help and you might say well how do I pay for that help and the good news is that there's a sliding scale and so you know nobody is turned away because they can't pay and you can get help for as little as five dollars uh, or you know, that might cost you a little bit more if you have a, a good job and, and you can afford to pay a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have all of those counseling services, walk-in and otherwise. And, and then the, the other big thing that we do um, that people don't really know about is um, we do half of the children's mental health work. We have a very strong partnership with Lutherwood in the region and Horizon and Lutherwood together serve uh, children with mental health needs both you know on the milder scale but at the the most intensive scales as well uh, and so we do we do good work mm -hmm. and I, I often joke that we're the best kept secret in Waterloo region yeah well and, and I mean I know the backstory of this a bit just also with the new name based on the amalgamation a few years ago for those that are listening it's relatively new name in the community but a long history beside you know behind that end given the diversity of programs, yeah, like a lot of people might be touched with it. Uh, but again, very well-kept secret in that regard. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and just just to in case any of your listeners do know the history, so Horizon is um, the amalgamation of the former agency that was uh, Catholic Family Counseling, and that agency became Mosaic Family Counseling. So that organization amalgamated with KidsLink, who did children's mental health. So those two entities came together in 2013 and became Horizon. And uh, uh, Horizon is uh, kind of a made-up word, and really it's the combination of the words care and Horizon, which really reflects the care that is available to you now and uh, a future on the horizon that's much better for you. And this again happened, the amalgamation happened prior to you coming in, of course. So I'm curious, again, you came in as an external hire in that respect. So what was the kind of the day one you you arrived? It's like, okay, how do I I get into this? Like, what was your journey, I guess, in the first little while to come in, understand the organization and, and assume leadership? So that's what I had to do. I had to come in and understand the organization. And also, uh, you know, because of the breadth of services, that took a while. I didn't have a background. I'm a chartered accountant by training. I didn't have a background in children's mental health um, or any of the other services that we provide. Um, But we have uh, exceptional directors who are subject matter experts in all of those areas. And um, my role I think is, uh, I have a few different things that I feel strongly about as my role. Uh, The very first is to nurture the people who work here. And I really believe that uh, we have an exceptional group of employees who every single person I've come across wants to be here because they care deeply about making a difference in the lives of people who live in our community. That's why they work here. And uh, so that I think is the first piece. And anybody who's gone through an amalgamation knows that that's a, that's a tough thing. There's a lot of um, turmoil that comes when two organizations come together. So between 2013 and 2016, there was a lot of, of work that was done on the structural parts of that and how to, how to bring those two organizations together Um, but the piece that lags from that sometimes is the cultural aspect of bringing two two groups together and so that's really what we've been focusing on all of the all of the structural pieces had already happened and my job has been to ensure that everybody understands what it's like to be part of an organization called Horizon Uh, We do have some lingering IT challenges, and so we're working hard to get that together from a structural point of view, but really it was about the people and and about making sure that now the synergies that we can get from doing children's mental health and counseling and pathways to education and community services, that that whole continuum that didn't exist before, that now exists, that we get all of the synergies and we make sure that the experience people have when they come in our door reflects all of the services that they they can possibly get. So that's one piece. And then I think the other piece, and I alluded this to, to this earlier, is we no longer, I feel quite strongly about this, that we no longer live in a world where not-for-profit agencies go it alone. And so a great part of what I do is build relationships with 
other organizations who are not-for-profits understand what they do, understand what we do. This is where my financial brain comes in because I feel that um, there, we live in a, in a time of scarce resources and it is incredibly important to use those scarce resources to the best of our ability for the, the benefit of all of the residents who live in our communities. And so we have an obligation to work together in the most effective way to keep clients and uh, individuals at the core of all the decisions that we make, not agencies. And so I work very hard at, at um, making sure that we, we talk about the people that we provide services for. And I think the agencies that, um, that provide the services come secondary and, and the obligation then is to see how we streamline things to provide a real patient and client-centered approach to mm -hmm. things. Yeah, it's like putting the ego aside and focusing on the stakeholder first. And, and you've heard me talk about that, I'm sure, at the board, yeah. haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And again, coming from more the corporate side, I'm curious, what's your perception on the the unique role a nonprofit leader has to versus maybe a corporate leader, a public sector leader? Because there's a, similarities, but and some of them you just mentioned there, I think, especially around the collaboration aspect. But what are the differences that you see or the unique role a nonprofit leader has right now? Um, well, I think one of the opportunities is to uh, collaborate more effectively with the for-profit sector. Um, that doesn't get to the heart of your question. So what is it uniquely about my role versus... Uh, versus a for-profit role, I, th I think it is that um, lack of competi competitive nature and, uh, you know, whereas in a business, you can say, you know, I need to, I, my ultimate obligation is to create, create shareholder value. That's what I have to do and I have to grow my revenues and I actually have to be at the very forefront of all of the trends and I need to do that alone and I actually need to do that to the detriment potentially of my competitors. I don't think that flies in the not-for-profit world. I think you need to be looking outward together saying what does it look like and how can we together fulfill the obligations and the needs of the community. Uh, and that is a very different perspective than you would have mm -hmm. in the for-profit world. Yeah. I think it's three last questions. So one is, you now serve on a number of boards too, in addition to being in your role as CEO. What's your experience with switching those hats, I suppose? Because one day you're in execution mode, leading this team uh, or leading this organization, and then you have to shift to that board role. Like, How do you find kind of switching those hats right now? Well, I think I had so much, uh, so much time on the Grand River Hospital board, um, but I'm not sure I entirely switch my hats all the time. Mm. Um, when when you're on a board, you absolutely have to be on a board at the right level. You can't be operational, at least on the nature of the boards that I've been on. Sometimes when you have a really small organization, you can get into operations. But the role of a board member is to govern the organization, to oversee the strategic pieces. And, and I think um, really the obligation to have uh, a look at the whole system. Mm -hmm. And again, just like I said, CEOs can't anymore look at their own agency and, and stop there. 
I really think that board members have an obligation to look at the system of care, not saying my obligation is to make this agency the best it can be. Yes, you have to make sure that you know you're financially viable and that you you do things that put the the organization in good health. But more than that, you need to say what is the obligation to the system to make sure that each agency is working together and and communicating with other boards. So one of the things that we regularly did on the Grand River Hospital Board is bring the boards of the hospitals together. And when you do that, you recognize that the board of St. Mary's Hospital and the board of Cambridge Hospital and actually the senior leaders all care about the same thing, which is high quality patient care. When you identify that common link, then it puts you in a trusting environment that lets you say, you know, we don't all need MRIs of this capacity. How are we going to use that resource and how can we share it? And so all the same things that I try to do as a CEO to make sure the system works well, I do at a board mm. governance level to make sure the system works well. And I encourage it at both, at both places. Yeah, it's more fluid from what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Okay. My favorite question I always love to ask people is if you were to do a TED Talk, what would it be on? Oh. Well, you know what? I think um, if, I would, if I did a TED Talk, I actually gave a TED Talk-like presentation to an organization called Social Venture Partners in Waterloo oh, yeah, Region. Yeah. And so I think it, it probably is one of the most passionate um, things that I talk about, and that is um, my daughter Laura and our trip. So the, the conversation or the TED Talk or the presentation was called uh, Einstein's Fish. And Einstein had a quote that said, uh, if you judge a fish by how well it can climb a tree, it will grow up its whole life believing it is stupid. So let me just say that again. If you judge a fish by how well it can climb a tree, it will grow up its whole life believing it's stupid. And so when we looked at our trip, uh, one of the reasons that I didn't mention about our trip is our daughter Laura who is on the spectrum uh, was not doing particularly well in school uh, at the time was not particularly athletic so she wasn't academic she wasn't athletic um, and we just noticed in the school environment that everything that kids do is judged by those markers and we recognized that there's so much more that people should be basing their own self-worth on and our daughter Laura when we look at when we look back at our trip she got more out of that trip than either of our, our other two kids she thrived in a way that they didn't thrive. Uh, all kinds of strengths that she hadn't seen in herself before and we hadn't seen in her uh, came to light. And so I think the idea being that everybody in the world has unique strengths 
and we need to sometimes focus on what they are and not use the paradigms that we have in everyday life but we need to change our paradigm to say what is uniquely wonderful about you and how do I help you make the most of yourself because that is a great thing about you so that would be my TED talk well I'm glad I picture that question that was a fantastic answer wow damn um, well on that note Tracy thank you very much for participating today well thank you very much for having me Derek